everyone, welcome back to the podcast. Today I am joined by the iconic broadcaster, DJ and author, Annie Mack. In this conversation, we reflect back and talk about Annie's incredible career. We explore motherhood and her debut novel, Mother Mother. And of course, we hear about Annie's morning routine and power hour. So let's dive into this week's conversation with Annie Mack. Welcome to the Power Hour. I'm Adrienne Herbert, wellness coach, international speaker and author. Each week I speak to a variety of guests from business founders to Olympic athletes, leading coaches, change makers and innovators to find out their daily habits, their rules to live by and what motivates them to get up out of bed each day. Personally, I am on a mission to encourage, motivate and inspire. So I hope that the Power Hour will help you to achieve your personal and professional goals. Annie Mack, welcome to the Power Hour podcast. How are you? Hello, I'm so good and so happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's awesome. Honestly, we met last year at a dinner event in London. It was an event Mm -hmm. to celebrate the launch of Candice Brathwaite's second book, Sister, Sister. Mm -hmm. And I'll be honest, it was one of the first events that I went to after being at home during the pandemic, being by myself indoors. And as an extrovert, honestly, I was desperate. I was gagging (laughs) to be back in the room. And obviously with Candice, they get all of her amazing, amazing women. So in hindsight, Annie, I do feel like you got a bit of a short straw being seated next to me. I was so happy you were there, to be honest, because I, I went on my own. And like, obviously, I've got this. Uh, well, I think I was still on air then. So I went down after the show and I went on my own and I was a bit like, I literally don't know anyone. I know Candice because I interviewed her for my podcast, but I've, I've never met her in real life. Like, it's that kind of social media life where you feel like, you know, people, but you've never really met them. So I was kind of shy. And then I very luckily got sat beside you and you were so nice. And we had such a nice chat and it was wonderful. And now we're here. Yeah, here we are. And we talked so much. And I mean, to be honest, I feel like I know I talked a lot because as somebody who loves to eat, I actually talked so much. I think I let my food go cold, which never happens. But yeah, we talked about a life, about work, about motherhood, about book Mm. writing. And Mm. so when I sat down to write this this script and the questions for this interview, I was literally thinking where to begin. This is so much. Um, And I guess I guess where I'd love to start is by by going back so to your early career days you know you've had an extraordinary career as a dj and broadcaster you've traveled the world djing and hosting animat presents lost and found of course everyone knows you from your 17 years at bbc radio one so i'd love to yeah i guess go back to that and as a woman in an industry that is notoriously difficult to get into and, and still lacks equal representation for for females and for mm-hmm. songwriters music producers I think if you think back to the start of your career, were you aware then of the lack of women around you? I was aware, but I didn't see it as a political thing, if you know what I mean. Or like, I didn't really see it as any more than just how things were, if you know what I mean. So I I didn't feel the need to, uh, I wasn't angry about it, basically, until later on in my career. At that point, I was just really happy to be there. I never experienced kind of direct sexism or anything. I didn't feel like, my gender held me back. If anything, I felt like it helped me because there was so few women and, and people were kind of curious about me and, and wanted to kind of see if I could really DJ. I mean, which is patronizing at the start, but anyway. Um, so I do like at the start, like to be honest, I was just having so much fun. I was traveling the world. I was 
gallivanting everywhere, doing gigs. I was really ambitious. And part of that ambition definitely was wanting to prove that a woman can belong and exist in this world of, of mainly dance music uh, that I was working in. Um, and also just kind of alternative music in general, um, uh, you know, all of the kind of tastemakers and the gatekeepers of the world of music were mostly men. And, um, you know, the people that made me want to get into it were women. So I was conscious that the reason why I was there was because I had seen and heard other women doing this, but they were a tiny minority in, in this big world um, of kind of specialist music. So yeah, I, I kind of, I was really enjoying myself. I was conscious of it, but I hadn't felt angry enough to kind of start feeling like I needed to shout about it. And I also think I didn't feel confident enough and I didn't feel like I had enough experience or kind of uh, clout for anyone to mm. listen to me, basically, at that point. Yeah, well, I think for anyone at the start of their career that they feel like that. And actually, I kind of wanted to say, I think when I was thinking about, okay, well, how has it changed? You know, how's it changed? And often people say that as if, you know, everything's different now. But actually, I looked at some of the stats and for 2021, apparently it's still 30% of DJs that are female versus 70% male. And mm. then the most shocking one I read was that the top 150 clubs across the globe, the annual percentage of female DJs that are booked is 6%. Mm, which obscene. I thought is yeah, it's insane. So I've I guess... never seen that stat. That's terrifying. But it doesn't surprise me. But I mean, like it. What what what's interesting is my reaction to that first stat: the thirty two percent, or the thirty mm. percent of being female. Is that's good? <laughs> so I'm looking at that, being like, right. whoa, that's actually really good. You know, that's a third, nearly. Uh, of, of 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 DJs working DJs are women like that's huge compared to mm. what it was huge and and there has been a change and it's been a really positive change and it's been a a more speedy change I would say in the last kind of ten years especially but the problem still is is that there's still festival lineups you know with f or women on them or people mm. who identify as women and they're still selling out. So in terms of actual ticket sales, you can still sell a festival very well with, you know, with, with your 6% of DJs or less uh, that are female. And, and as long as that's happening, you know, promoters will still, will still put those festivals on, you know? Um, mm. So I think that the, the change that has to still come is we need more females in the same as any other industry, Adrian, like you need women at the top in order to make a change for gender inequality um or towards gender equality and and then you also need men to become um you know outspoken and feel responsible for the inequality themselves too and there's ways mm -hmm. that you can do that you know i do that myself as a dj if i'm on a lineup and i see that it's not equal it's not enough diversity on there in whatever way um i will go back and say this doesn't look right for me and if you want me to play at your festival i'm going to need to see more more names, you know, um, uh, and then the promoters are kind of, even if, you know, even if I don't end up playing that festival, at least they know that they're being held to account and their people are looking at their lineups and their lineups are being scrutinized in that way. And, um, I think if more big male artists did that, I think it would change very, very quickly. Oh, absolutely. And that's, and you're right. Often, often the power and the support and, and all of the things that we need to be, to be able to make change does come from, yeah, it's not always looking at the minority. It's actually the majority. Mm, exactly. Absolutely. 
And so, mm. and you mentioned the word gatekeeper earlier on, and I was thinking, you know, today the world of music and broadcasting and radio, you know, it's changed so much. And I mean, it continues to, and our increase in demand for online entertainment and streaming and sharing. So obviously, you know, things like YouTube and just the, the pace in which we consume now has mm. changed so, so much. And I feel like in many ways, there's less gatekeepers now and there's more opportunity for, for individuals. So if mm. you're, for example, really passionate and hardworking and, and you can say, okay, there might be different ways to get your foot in the door or you might want to grow your own audience online via YouTube or yeah, build a social media profile or start your own broadcasting through podcasting. So what do you think's been the biggest change that you've observed like during your career and what advice would you give to females or to anyone actually who's starting in the entertainment and music industry right now? I mean, I think you've really touched on it. It's the, it's the idea of, um, is this a word democratization The democratization mm -hmm. of, of, of so much of how we consume media, you know, from the arrival of streaming, you know, so radio doesn't hold all the power, um, you know, uh, to the arrival of podcasting, uh, to the arrival of being able to, you know, make dance music or, you know, technology in your room, garage band, these kind of things that allow people to explore and make really high level, you know, high quality music, um, or, or, or kind of audio content from the comfort of their own home. So it is just about that. It's about having conviction in your concept, your idea. Um, it's doing, spending time doing what comes really easily and naturally to you. And what I mean by that is try and do what you love. <laughs> so try and focus whatever your, you know, your uh, ambitions are in it, when it comes to kind of media and broadcasting and music or the arts around what you are most passionate about. Like, the best bit of advice I've ever heard is a Marianne Hobbs quote, and she is the radio DJ that's responsible for me wanting to get into radio because I loved her show so much. And that is never underestimate the power of your passion. And, you know, so it's kind of like putting passion front and center and saying, what am I the most passionate about? Then after that kind of building your kind of a structure around that of how you want to present that passion be it in a podcast be it on a song be it in a uh you know a a, a tv show a, a, a film script whatever and uh and then it's about learning your crafts so i think it's about authenticity which comes from doing what you love and then it's about um conviction and the conviction really comes from the strength of your idea and the strength of your 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 kind of content and again the root of that is always authenticity it's honest lived experience and authenticity and people can believe you and i feel like on the radio having been on it for so many years you you you're able to believe someone a song like in a song very quickly you can tell whether that song has come from a boardroom or come from someone's heart and you know mm. and, and I, I believe that you can do that in a lot of different formats in terms of media and in terms of the arts as well mm. um you can see it in fashion you can see it in in broadcasting you can see it in music in arts you can really see when it when it's coming from a real raw place yeah, uh, and that's, I, that's 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 the essence of it really 
Yeah, I love so much of what you said about, you know, passion and about learning your craft, because as much as I'm sure people have heard the advice before that, it, you know, okay, now you can upload your music to YouTube or you can start your own podcast or, you know, people hear that advice a lot. And I think the pushback I often hear is, yeah, but there's there's so much noise now because it is easier. You know, you can sit at home and, and create yeah. stuff or you can just click a button and share it. I feel like people not that it's an excuse, but they'll kind of say, well, Adrian, there's already half a million podcasts uploaded every day. Or, you know, how can I, with my little tiny audience of five or 50 or whatever, how yeah. can I even start to yeah break through and get attention or, or kind of, you know, we, we live in such a visual metrics world that people will say, well, this video has got 90 mm. views and it kind of puts people off. But I think what you said then about if you've got passion and then learning your craft, that is so much more important than kind of thinking of the end game of, well, how many views is this getting? Exactly. And it's consistency as well. And it's, you know, giving yourself room to improve. And, you know, it is a flooded market, the podcasting world, but a good idea will shine through and, and kind of real authentic conversation will shine through. And I think it's, it's about consistency and, and determination and, and kind of put, you know, investing your time into it and learning your craft. It's really great advice. And so moving on from there, I want to talk about your book. We're going to come on to that later on, but I mean, you've recently published uh, your debut novel, which was a bestseller. So firstly, congratulations on the success of the book. Thank you so, so much. Yeah. Still doesn't feel real, to be honest. Still can't quite believe it. And I still cringe when I say the word author. I haven't really, <laughs> I haven't really like owned that transition yet. <laughs> Well, as I said, I want to dive into that. And I know how much I know how much hard work it takes and how much work and time you poured into that book. So can't wait to dive into all of that. But I heard you say that this book was not what people initially expected you to write. And, yeah. you know, it's a really powerful and quite dark novel exploring motherhood, mm. addiction and grief. And so I'd love to hear from you about that. You know, how did you navigate the transition and how deliberate and intentional did you have to be about changing people's perception and, and not allowing other people's expectations of you and your work to to stop you from creating the work that you wanted to do it was a really interesting journey because um my career had kind of like if you look at my career as like a cruise ship right it was kind of like a like it was kind of like it it, it had become a big thing with a kind of ecosystem of people around me that were facilitating various aspects of it and it was it was moving um slowly but quite steadily in one direction and then I turned 40 and I really wanted to do, I just had this urge to learn. I really wanted to learn something new. Um, I don't know why or where that came from. I just had it and I took up this writing course. And, and basically this writing course afforded me like discipline and deadlines. And I had to, I had to put words on paper and I had to hand them in. And what I realized after doing the writing course was that I, I, I wanted to continue writing. I kind of started this book. So I, I kind of wrote the book and didn't think of anything else. Like it was a very private thing and it was my thing. And it felt really exciting because you know, all of my career was, you know, was, was, was going really well. I was a mum, I still am a mum, but I, there was, I had, I was needed by so many people basically. Mm. And this book was my little thing that I was doing for myself. And it felt really self-indulgent and exciting. And I hadn't done anything for myself in that way in such a very long time that was mm. really pure to my passion. And, uh, so I wrote the book without thinking about anything beyond the writing process and what, what I wanted to write about. And then it was afterwards 
when I found out it could be published and when I then had to kind of tweak it a bit and, you know, finish it off, that it, it was like, how the hell am I going to do this? Because first of all, it got turned down by so many publishers, so many, because right. they couldn't see the persona of me uh, sitting, like being aligned with this book that I had written. They just couldn't get it. And so much of book writing, as in any other industry, you know, is about the marketing and the promotion of a product. So mm -hmm. they, they were just, they, they couldn't see it. So, and I don't think they could see me as being the person that wrote that book as in their versions of me. But the truth is that was me. That was like a hundred percent who I was, but the, but, but, but my career was kind of going in a direction that wasn't quite who I was at that point. So I then had to figure out how to change people's minds or just kind of tweak their perspectives of who I was. And, you know, the world is a busy place. I, on being on the radio for that long, it was very easy for people just to have an idea of, of me. And, you mm. know, it, it's, it's, it's natural and they just equate me with music or rave music and that's fine. So yeah, it took a long time and it, it wasn't like a, you know, we didn't sit there having meetings being like, how do we change people's minds? A lot of it came naturally. A lot of it was me trying to do some short form writing pieces and just putting them on my website again, just trying to get better at writing and just letting people know that I wrote basically. Yeah. Um, I wrote a few pieces for newspapers and then the podcast really helped as well because that was me having conversations about all sorts of things that weren't music. So that really widened people's perceptions of, of me as a broadcaster, which was a really helpful thing too. And then as, as we got closer and closer to the book, um, I just kind of kept doing that more and more, kept writing more pieces and doing lots of interviews and trying to persuade people and let people see that uh, there was more going on uh, than just the music without trying to demean the music as well. So that was the other thing. It's like I didn't want to try and belittle the radio or the DJing or any of that, but I did want to kind of just show how passionate I was about writing. Yeah, well, there's two things that might, well, one thing that might surprise people to hear is when you said that it got turned down by publishers and that there was an element of, well, I guess, you know, anything that you create and then you share and then, you know, if it, we see it as a rejection or a failure. And I think people probably be surprised to hear that because I, I do think there's a bit of a perception that if you have a public profile, if you have, you know, you, you're, mm. you're someone who, you know, people think, oh, you can just say, well, I want a book deal and you can get one. Or you might just say, oh, I want to bring out a, I don't know, let's say an accessories range. And people go, okay, cool. Like, you can do yeah. what you want because you have yeah. this profile. But as you said, you know, there's a whole industry, everything from marketing to sales to all of these moving parts. It's so complex. You can't just, yeah, just walk in and say, I want a book deal. I guess you, you still have to prove you can do it. Yeah. And I think, I think as well, it's the nature of the book. So if I had, look, I think everyone would have been up for me writing a book about raving or clubbing or yeah. even like, even a fiction book that was based on someone in, you know, nightclub world or music world or, you know, something that it could be easily attributable to, to the, to the kind of public persona of me. But because this book, as you mentioned, is quite bleak and sad, and there's very, very little in there that you could directly kind of trace to me as a writer. But I think subconsciously that was, I want, I didn't want people to, I didn't want to use my career or my, my, whatever you call success in, in music, in that music industry to sell a book. 
So in a way, it was kind of, as my agent always tells me, he said, you did things completely the wrong way around. You know, <laughs> you should have started by writing a memoir or a book about, you know, club culture and then gone on to do the fiction, but you made it really difficult for yourself. But now what's good about that is that I've, you know, people know that that's what I do now. So I can then go and write whatever I want. And there's an acceptance, I suppose, hmm. um, that is... That, that, I, that I can write what they call literary fiction, which I learned when I put out the book. I didn't know it was called that, but that's what it's called. Yeah, and it's that the merit in that work and that it stands alone, as you said, it's not because, oh, well, that's, you know, kind of the easy sell, but it's actually the merit of, of your work. So, yeah, it's a real achievement. And also for people listening, if, whatever you know, maybe they're not, uh, they don't have a profile like yours, or maybe they just feel like they're in a box, whether that's within their work, you know, within their role in their organisation. Sometimes people feel like, well, other people expect me to do this. This is what they've seen me doing for so long that they don't feel like they can change and they don't feel like they can you know get out of that box so i think it's great for people yeah. to hear that um yeah. and also you know i'm a big champion of change i'm a professional encourager so i always say and yeah, i know I love that, that yeah i always say it. i'm like with everything i do because people say oh you wear so many hats what's the kind of thread between it all and i'm like i'm a professional encourager that's what i do um but i'm always that person it. who will tell people you know go for it. You can change your job if you want. You can change your hair. Mm. You can experiment with new ideas. You can embrace the uncertainty and the risk and all of that. And, you know, there's something, a topic that you explore in depth on your podcast changes. But as well, that's the flip side of all the excitement of change is that it can be really, really hard. And, yeah. you know, often people speak about change in a positive way retrospectively. So after the fact, they'll say, oh, change, you know, embrace it. But when you're actually in it, it can be so complex and difficult and just overwhelming is there anything that stands out to you something that you've learned from having so many conversations on your podcast about change I just think like the root of change like change always comes from the cracks so you know and I think that you're right it can start from a very hard place um, and, and there's different natures of change and this is the other thing you know there's so many facets to it but there's change that happens to you and that, that, you know, that's the stuff that's most hard because that's the stuff that comes out of nowhere. It's grief, it's, you know, illness, health problems. It's a lot of stuff that happens when you're a child, you know, stuff around you, your parents, whatever. And then there's the change that happens when you're grown up that you kind of enforce or that happens as a result of something else. Um, and it's it, like, obviously the change that happens to you are, is, 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 horrific and that's change that can take an entire lifetime to process and sometimes you can never process it and you know that that is just something that I have never really had to experience in an extreme way so I learn from other people on that and I am surprised by their grace and their courage and um, a lot of them say that despite how hard it was at the time it is always something that has kind of shaped them as a person and they're able to, as you say, with hindsight, like see how it has formed them and made them stronger and made them live harder and made them want to seize every second of the day and, you know, kind of live it to their full. So, you know, no matter how horrific something can be, I think there is always potential later down the line to see how it shaped you and, and you know, how it shaped your perspective on your existence. And then in terms of change that you enforce, which again, there's so many different facets of it, but 
that to me all stems down from one really really simple question and you will know this as an encourager of change Mm -hmm. it's that the hardest bit of the whole process of change is the very nucleus of it which is asking yourself what do you want and knowing yourself well enough to know what you really want when you take out all of the obligations around you family, children, friends, social conditioning, what you feel like you should want, what you've been told all your life you should want, you know, all of that stuff. And when you really explore the very core of who you are, and as long as you're very clear with what you want, and it can be very difficult, obviously, the change bit, but the hardest bit, I think, is knowing that bit is knowing what you want Mm. and kind of figuring that out and going on that journey introspectively to figure out what it is and then then it's a matter of getting there (laughs) yeah which is also hard you know it's so powerful hearing you articulate that so well the difference between change that is yeah forced upon you essentially and change that is your choice and Mm. change that you implement and that you feel like you're the driver of it's it's so different and complex but again still hard because figuring out as you just said what do you want not what should you want but that is so so powerful and i think that you know leads me on to thinking about regrets because you know, regrets, I think, need a bit of PRing. I think regrets are seen as such as like a bad thing. And then, you know, this, we see this you know, no regrets. And I think the idea of having no regrets is actually nonsense because I think regret yeah. personally, I think, you know, regrets can be an indicator of things that you don't want to repeat or actions that you should take. So, sure. yeah, I think moving on from that theme of change, but understanding, well, actually, when people try and figure out what they want, Yes, you know, when we when we hear old people reflect on their lives and they say, I wish I'd done this or I wish I'd told that person or I wish I'd taken action. So, yeah, I'd love to hear from you. Do you think that regret can be useful? Do you think it can inform decisions and and be valuable to us? Or do you think maybe regret is actually a waste of time? Because if you can no longer change it, you can't go back in time. So maybe Mm. it's a waste of energy to even think about regrets. I don't know. It. I guess regret. I'm just trying to like deep the the actual like definition of it. It's kind of sadness, isn't it? It's it's like feeling disappointed over something that 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 happened in your life. Mm-hmm. And I don't know. I feel like the the thing that the that came before that, which is the reason for that something happening, the failure around that. That's something that you can definitely learn from. But I think the regret in itself the feeling of disappointment or sadness, I don't think that is necessarily beneficial to kind of perpetuate because I guess what it, it what, what it, what, where it comes from that feeling of sadness is, 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 is kind of frustration, I suppose. That's something not going the way you wanted it to go to. So if you can channel that aspect of it and say, I'm regret that I didn't do that. And I'm going to try and change it into something that is, you know, different and 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 that I can feel glad about then yeah it is good it is good I don't know I I I feel conflicted about it Adrian (laughs) that's where I'm at (laughs) yeah I think it's similar to the change when it's your when it's basically if you could influence the outcome I think that's the difference maybe between a regret is that you think I could have done something differently or I could have you know taken that job or told that person that I loved them or whatever so then you feel this sense of regret because you didn't take action whereas maybe if it's out of your control you can feel disappointment you can feel sadness but if it's something you couldn't change anyway then I don't know if it's a regret then maybe it's just yeah as you say like a sadness about something that's happened that you can't change Mm, mm, yeah absolutely 
It's an interesting one, but I think something mm. that, yeah, just it definitely got me thinking when I listen to you talk about change because regret is something that, I, I don't know, I think I have this fear actually of I'm always trying to live in the present as we all are, be present, yeah, but I've yeah. always got one eye on the future. I'm such a thinker, doer, planner that I've always got one eye on the future as well. So I think yeah. it's this kind of contradiction and of tension there. Um, mm. But we touched very, very briefly before about the book Mother Mother. And so I want to dive into that because I actually listened to it last year on Audible. Now, regular listeners of this show will know that I love Audible. I'm always listening to books when I'm out running. I'm always recommending books to people that I've listened to. So firstly, I have to say, I absolutely loved it. Really, really enjoyed it. And I'll be honest, I don't listen to fiction. I only listen to nonfiction <laughs> books. So for me, I was like, this is so new to be listening to a fiction book. And and the fact that it's, it, well, it's amazing, but the fact that it's it's read in, in Northern Irish accent and it's so descriptive and it was quite apt because, you know, in December in the morning, it's dark and it's cold, it's moody. So I really yeah. felt just like immersed in the book. Thanks, Adrian. I'm so chuffed that you listened to it. And yeah, Brona Wach, the actress who who did the audiobook, is just so good. I was so moved by her. And what's mad is when you write the book and then you hear her talk it, it comes alive completely. Mm-hmm. It's like I didn't really feel like my book anymore in a great way. Like it was like, God, this is it, it, it just made me be removed from it in a really healthy way, I think. Um but yeah, I'm really chuffed you you listened to it. Thank you. And I'm so glad you enjoyed it. Yeah. And I mean, I mentioned to you that I feel like I'm sure at some point you're going to get an offer to turn it into a TV series because it's just, yeah. I, I, as I was listening to it, I could see, I could see the ad on, on like a BBC uh, drama. Um, so, <laughs> so watch this, watch this space for that. But since the, since the book came out and you know the response has been fantastic but you you mentioned you know that process of you writing it and then taking it out and obviously now it's shared with the world so yeah, yeah how how did that feel like putting it out there and being like right I, I can't change it now it's it's out there absolute torture absolute <laughs> like excruciating and I still can't handle people reading it like I still have like just tense up at the thought of people reading it I just can't relax about it I don't know if you can ever relax about it I keep speaking to other authors and I'm like when 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 am I going to be happy with this book I I don't know it could be better and I think you always think that about your work you always think it could be better so in terms of stopping it and putting that full stop on it I I found that really hard and you know this is after 13 versions of the book I could have written another 13 Um, but if you, if you, if you kind of put that beside the fact that I'm really impulsive and really impatient, um, I was also really eager just to, just, just to, for the whole process to happen. So I, Mm. it was kind of a confliction there and like, it's interesting, like the different natures of radio and, and book writing, they couldn't be more extremely opposite because I'm doing a daily radio show, which is completely in the now representing and documenting everything in the now reflecting people's moods now and Mm. getting immediate reaction from people on text and on tweets talking about the music i'm playing or what i'm talking about um radio is quite an ephemeral kind of transient thing it does you know there's nothing to hold on to it's not solid it's just something that comes and goes that represents the mood of the nation and it's all very kind of in the present and then a book is this huge long juggernaut of a 
thing that takes ages to happen. And even when you finished it, you have to wait ages for it to be published. And then you have to wait another age for the paperback to come out. Honestly, it, it took, it's years, it's years in the making. And it's as someone who's so used to this kind of immediacy in terms of my work and the receiving of my work, I, I, I found that really difficult. I just could not. I remember going to the publishing house and meeting all the people and them saying, right, so we think it's going to come out summer or sorry, spring uh, 2021. And at that point, it was like September 2019. And I yeah. nearly fell off my chair. I was like, <laughs> Are you actually serious? I said, the whole world could change. I might not want to put out a book then. Like, what the yeah. F? Like, But I'm learning now how... Um, how it works and I'm slowly kind of getting into the rhythm of it. And this second book that I'm writing, I'm able to pace myself much more and I'm able to relax into the process and kind of know, know how long it takes. And interestingly as well, the way that I write, I don't plan anything beforehand. I just splurge it all onto the, onto the paper or onto the page. And, and when you do it that way, you need to be able to write it all out, then go away, put it in a drawer for like six weeks, mm. get really removed from it and then come back and read it, you know, objectively. And, and in, you know, so you need to have these month long kind of six week long gaps in between writing the book or writing drafts of the book. So that does take time actually. And you need that time to really be able to see it for what it is. Yeah, you see, in some ways I can relate, Annie, because I'm also impatient and I'm someone who, yeah, I like immediacy things, but then I haven't written a fiction book. I don't think I ever could, but I've written a non-fiction book. And I think yeah. our process sounds quite different because my process is definitely that kind of, I'm a structure person. I kind of outline the whole structure. Right. I knew, for example, with the last book, I knew I was like this, even when I pitched the the proposal I was like I knew exactly I'd outlined what every single chapter would be and you know who I just I'm a planner and I kind of then went away and had to kind of populate it yeah. whereas I think it definitely I've heard you describe before how you kind of yeah started with something kept chipping away chipping away and evolving it and actually as it went along it changed yeah. so I guess like with the with the characters that you created and you know I think it must be well I don't know like I said I've never written fiction but I can imagine it would be quite a nice escape to like fully immerse into that world of those characters so when you were writing you know how did that process and evolving those characters was there any I guess was the people in your mind were they based on anybody or were they completely fictional they were completely fictional um Completely. Like there was some of my own experiences um, that I used uh, and kind of people in my life that I borrowed from. But in terms of the full kind of rounded people, there, there wasn't one that was like cleanly based on someone else. Um, the closest version would be Sid, the old guy who's based uh, a bit on my uncle Dave. And, um, you know, I realized like going back and reading about his flat, which is kind of very uh closely described in the book is that it's literally dave's flat like you know so it's funny there's rooms that i've been in in real life that exist in the book mm. um and you know there's there's like uh, like little bits of people parts of people's personalities and stuff but nothing else really um but it, it, it is really mad you know when you when you're deep into a book which i am at the moment for my second book and you have this world um, yeah, it's completely fictional with all these characters in it that you feel like you know so well and they exist in your mind all the time and it's mad you, like it's it, you just you can just kind of go go slip in there and exist in that world and uh, I don't know it just feels like this really exciting thing this kind of secret world in your head 
So I think I, we've lost that a little bit. I feel yeah. like what you're describing is like when you're a kid and you kind of just, yeah, make up these stories and these yeah. worlds and imagine and pretend. And that's kind of normal when you're a child to just, yeah, make believe and pretend. And you can have such detail about, yeah, what you create. Um, but, but motherhood obviously centers in the book and, you know, motherhood is so complex. And I really love how you showcase the nuanced and complex relationships that people have with their mothers, as well as how being a mother yourself, you know, there's how much that impacts us and our identity and I've got yeah. a lot of friends and we talk about that you know this feeling of bef- before you become a parent and then when you become a mother and how you have this almost like double identity or identity crisis mm. so there's so much around that like I just yeah where to begin I think why did you fast, why did you want motherhood to, to be placed at the center of this book well I didn't that's the thing I did like I had no kind of preconceptions of what the book was going to be I had no plans so it was really interesting what came out um, and, and, and it was only way after the book when when I was kind of doing interviews about it that I really had to start deeping why, like why this book turned out the way it did. Um, because at the time you're not thinking, you're not thinking, why am I motivated to write about this? You know, what, you know, it, it just comes out and you're, you're trying to get the book out and finish it and make it good. And I don't know, I think, I think for me, it was very dominant in my mind, the theme of motherhood, because my kids were still very young. And my youngest child had just, he he was two and a half when I started the writing course. And he had kind of, we, we had just got to that point where he was sleeping really well. And I was starting to see the wood for the trees, basically. I was coming out of a few years of feeling really consistently very tired. And um, I think, it was just it, it was just motherhood was was everything it was kind of my whole life was defined by trying to be a mom and trying to hold it down as a mom whilst doing a career all the moments I had with my kids being very feeling very significant because I only had an hour with them or two hours here or whatever in the week and it was just like I really need to make this count and so I think I probably felt a lot of stress in terms of trying to be the best parent I could be with that regard and then I think as well because I set the book in Belfast um my own mother I have a lot of a a kind of strong association of of the place Belfast and Northern Ireland as a whole with my mum so Mm. I think something about that too and I think there's some weird kind of I think thinking about my own mom and what a what a, you know how lucky I was and am to have my mom who was incredibly gentle and generous and giving and as a mom and wondering what life would be like if you if you didn't have that and how that can you know how it can shape a person in both ways mm. i think there was yeah. something in that as well and kind of you know trying to trying to figure out how that would feel to not have that um mm. which which mary in the book doesn't and and kind of she's really struggling to um to be the best mum she can be without having learned what it is to be a mum in the first place so it's kind of she's blind in that regard yeah I think it's yeah like I said I really really enjoyed it and I thought I know that as I said motherhood is so complex and as a mother I think you start to interrogate all the relationships of you know with your own mother but also as a mum and you know we started the the interview by talking about you know your career and so as a professional working woman whatever you want to call it these days um 
I'd love to hear a bit about how you've navigated that because, you know, I mentioned I have a 10 year old son and I'm 34 now. So a lot of my friends don't have kids, but they're now starting to think about it, talk about it. It's kind of in a lot of my conversations right now. And the thing that comes up so much is about, yeah, this idea of identity and not being ready to change or compromise things. And I think many women feel as though they've got to apologize for wanting to maintain a career and also start a family. It's almost this, yeah, unspoken thing of like oh you're still gonna work or you know how much time are you willing to take off and there's this little bit of yeah I guess like social judgment or pressure so yeah you've got two two young children did you feel that conflict at all between motherhood and and your career or or a pressure to do both well my biggest fear was like I don't want motherhood to remotely affect my career I was like really into having a career and I never ever thought about any guilt about having having kids and having a career it was more just like, I don't want the kids to compromise the career, yeah. which is gas. And I like had my first kid and was like, that's it, charging on, let's go back to festivals, you know. Um, and it wasn't until I got to the second kid that I realized how just tired I was and how I didn't necessarily want to do it this time in the same way. I kind of, I'd proven to myself that I could do it in some weird kind of self challenge the thing that I did it was like yes I can do this it is possible but it's equally uh it's stressing me out it's actually stressing me out and um I want to have more time and I think also uh I waited longer than you to have kids so I had my first kid at 34 and and so I was well into my career then and I think when you're that further in it's harder to compromise because it's mm. it's kind of it's all you've known and it's you've it's way more kind of enmeshed in your identity um so it didn't take I had my second kid when I was 38 and and at that point I think I'd become a, a lot more relaxed just a lot more chilled about who I was and and, yeah. and 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 so it was and then I guess the culmination of all that was then leaving Radio 1 which was for many reasons, you know, writing being one of the main ones, but the other one being that my youngest kid was starting school and my show was at such a time that I just wouldn't see him much in the week. And mm. I wanted to see him. And it's really interesting, different attitudes to me leaving, because even though I'd been holding down a kind of really uh, kind of a busy career and kids for pretty much 10 years at that point, people still uh, seemed kind of, uh, what's the word, put out that I was choosing to leave my career for my kids. It kind of felt like reverse feminism in a way. Uh, Whereas for me, I saw it as the most feminist thing you can do because being a feminist is having choice. It's having the power to have choices. So for me to be able to choose to leave that aspect of my job and work in different ways for me to you know, want to see my kids, I thought was a really hopefully empowering thing. Mm. Um, And it was also kind of redefining what success meant to me as well. It's this idea of, you know, success being big on lineups and, you know, you know, having, you know, just like being seen to be successful as opposed to being happy in your own skin and fulfilled in your own life. And that being the new the, the, the kind of success I really wanted to, to, to strive for. And for me, making that move to be able to see my kids more was the most empowering thing I could do in terms of being the new type of successful I wanted to be. 
I love uh, Annie. I love that so much. I think people, <laughs> honestly, because this the the empowerment piece around choice, and I feel like for women, often it's you're damned if you do, damned if you don't. So for friends who are like, oh, okay, I'm going to take time off when the baby's born, literally like a year, two years, and it's kind of this feeling of oh, I'm just a mom, or I'm not doing anything, I'm not going to that their career is going to suddenly, you know. But you know, even what you said when you were like, I didn't want it to impact my career. I wanted to, you know, people, mm. whichever one you choose, whichever one you which is your choice I think there'll always be someone who with an opposition saying well you should stay at home while the baby's young or you shouldn't mm. let the you know motherhood yeah you should persevere uh, mm. sorry you should continue to pursue your career and it's it literally it's such a interesting web and I think also because of different generations I when I talk to people about it it's often what their mother thinks or what their mother-in-law oh, thinks totally. or Totally. Oh, it's so complex, and, and I feel there's, like it's there's so... always going to be an opinion that's judging your decisions. And my mm. the, the the quickest thing I learned with becoming a mum was you should never judge another parent. Everyone has their own ways of doing it. Everyone is got their own like you know, as you say, their own kind of people around them. You know, their own people that they look to, their own issues, their own whatever. Like just just you have to just figure it out what's best for you and what best for your kid, and only you knows what's best for your kid like everyone's different so I don't know I just think when you parent for a while I think you relax into it and you feel more confident with your choices within it and and mm. and, and that's why I think I could only have done what I did with my second kid as opposed to the first uh, and I'm so grateful that I got a chance to do it um but you know having kids is a choice and it's a responsibility and it's a privilege and yeah. um I think that that's another thing that I learned is that you know, having had eight years of my eldest son's life, it's like this, this is so precious. And I know that now. And I, I just don't want to miss it. I don't want to miss it with my second one. And I definitely yeah. don't want to miss it with my first one because I've missed enough. Yeah. Wow. So it's so beautiful to hear that. And last but not least, as this is the Power Hour podcast, then we have to talk about the Power Hour. And actually yesterday I mentioned to somebody that I was going to be talking to you today and they were like, I cannot wait to hear this part because they just can't imagine what your, what your answer is going to be. So right. essentially in this part of the show, I always ask people what time they get up in the morning. I ask them what their kind of first hour of the day is like. And for me, the, the power hour concept really simply is just about reclaiming some time. So for me, it's in the morning. It happens first thing. It's every day. It's been like this for years now. And I use that time because it's free from distraction, free from interruption. I can choose whatever I want. I can have solitude. I can literally just say, this first hour of the day is all about me whatever I want and then after that I'm going to give my attention and my energy to multiple things you know my son my work whatever I need mm. to do that day but well, like I said when I was thinking about this I was like well the life of a DJ and also just different you know lifestyles I'm really fascinated to to hear from you Annie about yeah what the first hour of your day is like these days so it's really changed Adrian like in a massive way it used to be chaos and I wouldn't know where I was waking up in what city or you know always traveling and a lot of the time early in the morning I would still be awake um, from either partying or just like traveling or getting back to the hotel after DJing and sitting having breakfast before I try and catch a few hours before I get on a plane now it's it's I've never been so uh a regimented sounds like a harsh word but I've never had such a kind of consistent routine in my day and I really love it 
I, I, th I think it's a reaction to the chaos of the 20 years that came before, but it feels like a novelty and a really healthy, lovely novelty. So we all get up uh, around the same time, around 7, 7.30. Um, the kids are a bit slower than me. And if I do wake up at 7, and I would wake up naturally then, I would always just take a moment with my thoughts and then do one of two things. One would be go to the office um, at the back of the house and just sit and write, work on my book, write some thoughts, personal journal style thoughts, kind of document what's going on in life. Um, or I would go for a jog because um, I feel like a jog at that time, even without a coffee, just straight out the door, don't even go into the kitchen, just straight in and straight out um, is a really beautiful way to start the day. And then you're back at the house like 20 minutes, half an hour later and everyone's up and you're, you're just ready for the day. So I'm the same as you. That early, that first hour is really precious mm. and I really value it. And uh, it once the, once the kids go to school, which is always at around half eight, then I always write first thing in the morning because that is when my head is most clear and when I feel most inspired and I don't know, it just works. It's when the stuff pours out of me. So those hours between kind of 8.30 and 10.30, 11 are really precious working hours, really mm -hmm. valuable. I, I would I would rather have one hour then than an entire afternoon because of because of what I'm able to achieve in that time. And then I use the afternoons for the more kind of pernickety stuff that doesn't involve so much kind of purity of thought. You know, it's tweaking, mm -hmm. it's editing, it's, you know, that kind of stuff, researching so yeah it's such a precious time in the morning for me i love it so much oh my gosh me too you see i feel like you're, you're speaking the same language because firstly firstly with the running obviously of course you know i'm a morning runner and at this time of year is the absolute best if people are ever gonna listen to power hour and, and start running then i'd say the spring you know we're kind of coming into spring you kind of it's not so dark in the morning so that's mm. you know a beautiful way to start the day but also what you said about doing kind of the output part of work so like you said in the afternoon like things that kind of i don't know back and forth whether it's emails or whatever but doing kind of creative focused output of work I'm exactly the same I sometimes will just go straight to the kitchen table yeah. at 5 30 and I won't move until you know if it's a weekend for example and my son's not here and I'm just writing I've done yeah. that before and I haven't moved until 11 yes. I've not had a coffee not had a shower just oh, literally till 11 and then I'm like what is 11 you know yeah. <laughs> it's the best yeah yeah that i wouldn't have been same. able to write my book um because also it was during the pandemic and there's so many things and i always say to people i wouldn't have been able to write that book if i hadn't have got up to do it first thing in the morning yeah 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 i love those times so much i love them they're so valuable again great advice oh i've absolutely loved this conversation <laughs> so much so thank you annie for joining us on the show for giving us an hour of your time and for everyone listening as always thank you so much for tuning in to this podcast i really do appreciate it and all of the you know rates reviews all of that good stuff it helps us to continue to share the message of the power hour far and wide so thank you so much for tuning in i'll be back next week thank you annie thank you so much adrian thanks for having me Hold up. What was that? 
Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 